Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 18th, 2023. I am uh, Charles Hayne, filmmaker, and I'm here with Gigi Hawkins, filmmaker and, and uh, editor, producer of the podcast. Hello. And I'm here with screenwriter Jason Hellerman. Hey. We are also here with Yaro Altunin, the uh, tech editor for No Film School. Say hi, Yaro. How's it going? This week, we're going to talk about Indie Film Makes Good at an Oscars with no drama. Zero drama, which is amazing for a, a heavily dramatic event. Uh, we're going to be following that up with the world's like biggest comedy trailer sensation, which ever could bode well for a return to theatrical comedy. I feel like every couple of years, people are like, are theatrical comedies back? And I think the real lesson is, is they haven't really ever gone away as much as we're afraid. And then we are going to be wrapping all of it up with a conversation of, of Seth Rogen, critique, and critics. That's this week on the No Film School podcast. So the first obvious conversation we've got to have is the Oscars this week. Obviously, our episode plays at the end of the week, so maybe no one will even be talking about the Oscars anymore, as opposed to last year where everyone was talking about it for like three weeks. You may have just listened to our relaunch of the interview with the Daniels and editor that is publishing on Monday, last Monday. What is time now? It's Thursday. It's Friday. It's Thursday. <laughs> That's our so Depending that's our upon where you are in the feed, exactly. it might be more recent. But yeah, we're here to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, a film that, well, not necessarily a fully independent film. Like, you know, the producers were obviously huge studio directors. And there's a, uh, there's a lot of infrastructural support that was available. But, you know, the directors came up indie style. They came up as music video directors. They were doing amazing music video work 10 years ago that was getting a ton of attention that turned into amazing independent feature work at, at low budgets. They did that classic indie feature thing with Swiss Army Man where they had a great script and then they got a celebrity to star in it in Harry Potter and Harry Potter has done a really smart thing with his fame where he's used his fame to finance a bunch of he doesn't finance it but because he's famous enough a lot of weird little movies get financed and I have like a tremendous amount of respect so for much respect for Daniel Radcliffe Absolutely. and Robert Pattinson like two that's oh, Two of the millennial dreamboats who pivoted to supporting indie film. Yeah, it's amazing. Was, and was Paul Dano not that big during Swiss Army Man? I don't know if Paul Dano can get movies. Fun. I love Paul Dano. I've watched the There Will Be Blood every other year. I don't know that he, for like foreign distribution people math, yeah. I don't know that for, Paul Dano moves the needle. I, like, I think even the, the Beach Boys movie he did, where he's amazing. Like he is yeah, so exactly. good in the Beach Boys movie, but I think it was John Cusack who was like smaller in the part, but playing an older Brian Wilson. I think it was John Cusack that moved the needle on distribution. Maybe Paul Dino does. I don't want to like. I don't mean this as a criticism. I just mean this as a hard bitten observation of the way film distributors tend to work. That like having been Harry Potter moves the needle a lot more than having been the priest in There Will Be Blood, whose name I can't, whose character name I can't even remember. Oh, Sunday. Yeah. Having Sunday. been Noah Sunday yeah. and There Will Be Blood doesn't move yeah. the needle quite as and much Eli as Harry Sunday. Potter. Yeah, exactly. And Eli Sunday. You're right. Both. Yeah, but there's also the Riddler and the new Batman. I mean, he's no, doing other yes. things that I can't remember. I think he's growing as like a, a staple, but he's always good in everything that he does. Because... He's great in The Sopranos. Yeah. Hmm? There you go. But yeah. it was Daniel Radcliffe that is the reason Swiss Army Man exists. Was, yeah. His body, his body 
was is the reason. Was he acting in his toots? Yeah. In his toots. But you know, they they that if there is any directing team that has the arc, like the the cliche, like first you do music videos and they're really interesting, and then you get an indie feature made because you talk a scar and do a great script, and then like their arc is the most like traditional cl- that and Chazil's arc with like turning Whiplash the short into Whiplash the feature, like those are the two most like storybook stories of getting to places and it's like it's a good movie it's nice to watch a good movie win often i watch movies win that i don't like and it's like oh i like that movie and it won best picture that's great were there any uh nominations this year that you saw and you were like hmm i don't know maybe that shouldn't have been nominated i'm not willing to own up on a podcast i I think every (laughs) year there's always there's always stuff no, I thought this year was really fun just for the diversity of titles, right? It's like you have indie movies, you have movies done by the greatest director of all time. You have, you know, smaller things. You have movies from Canada, from Great Britain, you know, from all over. Like it, it felt like a year where truly anything could be made. And that's the kind of Hollywood I want to live in where like, it feels like there's some variety, right? In between budgets, between visions, A24 cleaning up, I think is great for other people that want to invest I think everything ever at once costs sub twenty million, right? Probably between ten and twenty. They used a lot of practical effects. It was directors thinking outside the box. It's it's a big win for I think what most of us want to do, which is like people who break into Hollywood with a singular vision, doing something that's not based on IP. Um, yeah, it was it was very cool and exciting to an exciting time. I think. Well, also, yeah, like, I mean, not not to dig in too much on it, but like. You know, they did their VFX themselves. Like they got together yeah. with a bunch of their friends and they were like, we could go to a post house, but we don't have the money. So we're just going to team up with a bunch of people. And then we're just going to watch After Effects tutorials on YouTube. I would not be surprised if at some point there was not a no film school article that they read at some point in their process. They probably did. Of yeah. Like, how do I do this specific thing in After Effects? It definitely showed up in their search results. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was somewhere in the SEO back when SEO mattered before the AI apocalypse of <laughs> Google's. Like, you're, you're, uh, Gigi, I, I respect you're not wanting to say anything bad about any of the filmmakers, but I'll say it right now. Google's search results started to suck this year. Like, I'm com- <laughs> like, it's like noticeably dropped off a cliff, but back when it mattered, it was totally a thing. So, um, I'll yeah, say something do- not bad, but I'll say something that will m- make all of your jaws drop. I have not seen everything everywhere all at once. And I'm sorry. That's not that surprising. It's one of those movies that just came out and people were, um, I think, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Weirded out by it, but in a good way. And I think they needed to be in the right headspace because it wasn't a movie that people understood. And then when you saw it, you're like, oh, I get this. I think I will like it, but my partner saw it and we're AMC Stubbs Pass members. And so if he sees it, then usually like I don't see that movie until I sit down to watch it. And I've been kind of like never had a reason to start it. My 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 dad and stepmom last night on a Zoom were like, I didn't like I didn't understand everything everywhere all the time. They're not Southern, but they sounded like that. And and I personally was like really trying to push Triangle of Sadness as best picture because that is the thing that made me feel the most things this last year. And I had a sort of solo for your consideration campaign going for that film and it didn't get it. So I'm, you know, I'm out on everything everywhere all at once because I, uh, I chose one, I chose one and it was triangle of sadness. So that's, uh, that's my thoughts. That's interesting that you said that about your 
Um, is it your mom and your stepdad? My my dad and my stepmom. Uh, your, your your dad and your stepmom. My future in laws at this point saw everything everywhere all at once, and we raved about it. And we called them after they didn't. They said, uh, oh, "We don't we don't we didn't like it. We we didn't get it." And then I feel like we kind of had this conversation with them about why, and they couldn't they couldn't articulate it. But then we went, "Is it the bud stuff?" And they were like, mm, "Yeah." It was. Yeah, there's, there's some and, butt stuff. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you're not going to know, but there's some butt stuff. Yeah. Spoiler alert. And so there's a moment in the film that's very kind of progressive uh, from like, you know, uh, that for them, for that kind of culture was maybe a bit taboo and kind of seeing it on a big screen may make people uncomfortable. Hmm. Well, well the, yeah. I, I just think that it does we have to take all Oscars and awards with a grain of salt because like we've talked about before on the podcast, it's not like we're awarding the, how can we quantify or, or assign best picture to something like this clearly moved a ton of people and people love the film, but a lot of people didn't. And, and I don't know. I think that like we we're we're going to be talking about comedy down the line, but like, we're still not seeing, like comedy being recognized in this space. And I think that is like, it's, it's incredibly difficult to make comedy work. It's incredibly difficult to make a movie period, but to do a comedy. And I guess everything everywhere falls into that category. So I, I think it's a win on top of it being an original uh, non IP based thing. But um, yeah, t- I think, it, you know, it's not like the, everyone loves this movie. True. My, my question where, where I asked, which movies did you, I guess, not 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 want to see in the in the nomination? But the, the follow up to that would have been, what movies did you want to see get nominated, and for what parts? And Gigi, you said uh, Triangle of Sadness, which I don't think saw any nominations whatsoever. Right? Well, best Picture, yeah. Oh, it did. Best okay, screenplay, okay. yeah. Oh no, yeah. so it did get a couple nominations. Yeah. Okay, but are there any movies that didn't get nominated at all from this past year that you three wanted to see? I mean, I, before I get to that, I want to point out that, you know, about 10 years ago, they expanded the number of Best Picture nominees. And like, it's not always as big as some years, but this year it was like eight or nine to the point where people forgot Triangle of Sadness, you know, like yeah. movie person totally. And like, I don't know that I love the expanded pool of nominees. Like, I know they did it because Dark Knight didn't get nominated. And I know this year Top Gun Maverick got nominated, which like legitimately was a fantastic movie and deserved yeah. to be nominated. But when you go to that larger number, it is really hard to keep track of whether or not uh, they were nominated. Was there anything, though, last year that should have been in the mix and wasn't? You know, Was there a my, Fast my and the favorite. Furious movie? <laughs> I loved Emily the Criminal. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I thought Aubrey Plaza should have gotten a nomination. And I thought that was one of the best screenplays of anything I saw all last year. And, and for me, that look, do I think that's like a huge snub? Like, no, it, it was another smaller indie movie, but I just personally connected with that movie a lot and felt like there should be a bigger conversation around it that we didn't have. But I, I just think she's fantastic. And I, I was genuinely surprised. I mean, look, I think it was a pretty crowded best actress category, um, but just did not see any love for that. Um, I thought mm. it really could have broken through. That was a big one for me. I mean, the movie that made me uh, applaud with excitement at the end and laugh out loud with joy at the midpoint that will never have been considered is barbarian. Uh, oh yeah. You know, what a brilliant, like a, 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 
a screenplay that was original and uh, that what people were pushed back on the story and told the writer that the midpoint needs to happen sooner or we need we can't introduce this character at this point but a director and writer who stuck with their guns but you know i don't think that type of movie would ever be considered by the oscars unfortunately yeah i mean i look i thought jackass forever was a really good movie about getting older that we never really you know like they're never going to talk about that but uh you know maybe Nobody's someday when we get like it. a best stunt person award like i i feel like that's something again like I know bodies, bodies, bodies. I also love. Mm. I thought RRR should have been up for best picture if we're going to bring in all these other titles. Like it felt like I was actually surprised RRR was not up for best picture. Yeah, me too. I don't. More fitting than Triangle of Sadness, which I loved Triangle of Sadness, but like is a profoundly anti-capitalist downer of a movie, which isn't really what you love. Like the the uh, the Academy voters tend to love, and RRR I would have thought would have been a shoe in for best picture. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm not going to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. Where was Babylon, people? Underappreciated masterpiece. You know, I can't, We've got you know, two I, Babylon enjoyers on this podcast. I don't know if I'll call masterpiece, yeah. but I thought Babylon was solid. But you know exactly why Babylon was not there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. The industry does not reward failure. If Babylon yeah. had made money, it would have won Best Picture, hands down. Because the yeah. industry loved to congratulate itself, but it only if it makes money. As soon as Babylon had a week opening weekend, I was like, all right, well, that's it for awards. Yeah, that's totally fair, yeah. I think it, yeah. it, a fun, fun year, fun Oscars. It just felt like, um, I'll, I'll say like if I had to have a nitpick, when you have that many best pictures nominated, I do feel like we miss out on some of the best director category. Like it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit in favor of like maybe expanding everything to like seven things or something like that. But, I, but I'm aware of how long the show already is. So it's like, you're not going to make a day out of it. But it does feel like when you have that many movies, some directors miss the mark, not because of lack of whatever, but that's when name recognition and, you know, whatever comes in. Well, I think there should be more weird ass rules. Like there should be a rule that you can't be nominated for best director. If you're also up for best picture, just to yeah. like, you know, move the pool, just to be like, let's mix this shit up. Like, why not? <laughs> why not? I, I, my, my partner said something along the lines of like, Oh, if you won like two Oscars or three Oscars in a row, just like, you know, we'll give you like a, high five if you make a really great movie we'll get you free tickets to the show we'll give you like an honorary badge or something but you're done like you know let, yeah, you let the other one. people come in yeah or or that yeah you win one you're good and you can do one per category i think that's that's something unique that could be done in the future to kind of like mix things up then you have to like oh you can't nominate this person anymore like what well, do you do yeah, consideration campaigns get really cutthroat they exactly. do exactly yeah, yeah. That'd it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if I want to live in a world where you can't win multiple Oscars, but I, I do think there should be like an up and coming, like, like they do with like indie spirit, like best first feature or something like that. Like, mm. is there a way we could figure out? Like, I don't know. Sometimes I want, I do wonder like some of these movies that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, is there a way to expand the like best, I guess you'd have to be like best blockbuster and that's already failed. I don't know. It's like, I, I go back and forth with like wanting to know more names and get more people out there, but also being like, are those movies, are we then going to be filling in movies that aren't very good just to say we have them? So, but who knows? I mean, it's, it's why we love the Oscars, right? There's always something to talk about. There's always some sort of controversy. You know. But I mean, last night, no, no controversy. Is there any drama? There's no drama, right? Hugh Grant Maybe, didn't seem to want to yeah. be there. That's the some of some of Kimmel's jokes bombed, but he was like super professional about it. And like one of the oh, next yeah. ones, like, oh, cool, okay. 
Yeah, I don't even know if any of them bomb that hard. Like, I can't think of one that like people didn't love, or at least like react to in a, the way he wanted them to. Maybe like I'd say like the Jamie Lee Curtis Angela Bassett race was going to be the closest, um, you know, Oscar for both of them, and she uh, Jamie Lee Curtis wanted to walk away, but like no real drama, right? It's not like anybody got up and protested. Um, but yeah, everything else sort of fell in place. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the next thing. Let's think ever of the future, as the Academy Awards wants us to do. That is their motto, ever of the future. Is it? What of no, the... it's totally not. Oh, that I was like, that would be so random. Definitely not. Yeah. We just watched a huge trailer launch that is actually, like, maybe promising the return of theatrical comedies. Now, in this specific example, it is a raunchy trailer with Jennifer Lawrence. And so, like, it's not like every comedy... But, you know, every couple of years, there's some hope that we're going to see theatrical comedy return. I remember when Wedding Crashers came out and everyone's like, oh, my God, are comedies going to make money in the theaters again? And that was 17 years ago. But that was um, 17 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, Wedding Crashers has been out for a second. It's time speeding up. But, yeah, now we might actually see some hope. I think legitimately in the post-pandemic marketplace, comedies have really not brought people into the theater and it felt very much like a home viewing experience. But it seems like we might actually be looking at a movie that'll get some butts in physical seats theatrically on a comedy, which is exciting. Yeah, just for context for our listeners, the movie's called No Hard Feelings. Jennifer Lawrence plays a woman um, who's hired by a 19-year-old's parents and they want her to uh, have sex with him before he goes to college because he's kind of a loser. They want him to loosen him up a little, you know, in the trailer. It's called, they went willing to date you really hard. Uh, it's a very funny trailer. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence, hilarious. Um, in the first 24 hours it was on YouTube, it had over 50 million views, which is, you know, I think like shattered whatever the record is for R-rated comedies. Um, and I think like the only thing we can take away from it is is being encouraged, I think. Uh, comedy's always such a tricky thing and R-rated comedy felt like it had its heyday in the early 2000s with like the Judd Apatow movies and that whole crew spanning off to do stuff. But it, but it really has died down recently. Uh, one of my favorite recent, one, recent ones was Good Boys, which the directors of this, I think, did um, previously. And I thought that was one of the funniest movies I've seen in a decade. So it left me excited for this, but also like hoping people show up and don't just click on the two minute thing to laugh. But, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. And, um, but comedy making a big comeback would be great because a lot of these comedy movies aren't that expensive to make. And I feel like there's a hard upside, you know, there's no guarantees in film. You know, you see horror and action are the two biggest genres that make money now, but it'd be great to see comedy have a comeback, especially with a quote unquote serious actor like Jennifer Lawrence taking a script like that seriously recently in news. She had like left her agency and switched agents because she was like, no one ever sends me fun scripts anymore. She found out they were just like sending her the drama. So like, opening this window to me is it's it's exciting i think not just for that but for all of our aspiring and current writer directors out there who are looking to do something funny being able to package with an actress or actor like at, at an a-list level doing comedy would only be good and i i hope this movie makes a ton of money i mean i plan on seeing it in theaters opening on weekend yeah, yeah exactly well, just to make sure we all need to do this right now take out your calendars listeners <laughs> june 23rd 2023 and bring not two but three friends take them to the cheesecake yeah. factory beforehand then go to the movie <laughs> theater and enjoy it and laugh you're welcome and then go see it again next day and then see it again the next exactly. day like titanic exactly well i mean here's a question for you for you three what uh like i know that 
like bigger action films that are their cost a hundred million dollars, like fast 10 or whatever, they do work internationally. And I know that English American driven comedies, they aren't, they don't translate well overseas. Does horror have that kind of shift? Uh, does it, does it work overseas like an action movie does? I don't know about horror overseas. Without looking at hard numbers in front of me, Yaro, it's hard to say. Like, I, I think I can pull up um, on Box Office Mojo just, you know, vamping in terms of, like, what recently has made money. I, I think it certainly does. Look, the the big thing is, like, horror, much like action, is uh, a genre where it's not, you know, uh, let's say it's not historically dialogue-driven, right? It's, like, it's jump scares, it's things that pull you in, it's scary things popping out, and, and that's going to translate and be scary no matter what, whereas comedy... You know, if you're translating, if you're doing whatever, if you have to get dubbing, um, it's not always the best, uh, you know. Yeah, it's also a cultural but, thing. Like a joke yeah. that works in New York doesn't always work in Shanghai or like Belgium. Totally. Or, but like you if know, you're spending sub 25 million, maybe you don't need it to make a lot across. Doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, or, it doesn't. Yeah, and exactly. I think I, I'd love to see more low budget films like that in general, not just comedy, but horror, maybe even action. Like bring back Commando. Bring back like the the Rambo movies of the nineties where, you know, yeah. it costs 10 million. You go to the woods, blow something up and come back with a movie. Uh, because yeah, I, feel like, I feel like we have a lot of this. I mean, I like, I feel like we are getting a lot of sub $10 million horror in action. You know, nobody was that last year, the year before that was 9 million bucks. Like it feels like a lot of these John Wick knockoffs are all sub 10 and almost every Blumhouse horror is sub 10. Even knock at yeah. the cabin was, it, you know, it's marketing would probably cost five to 10 times more than, the actual budget I, comedy is the one genre that we are really not getting. And um, I think even just looking at the top movies this year in terms of box office, uh, foreign scream already made 22 million opening weekend, knock at the cabin, 18. Uh, I'm trying to think of other like missing sort of more of a thriller, but still almost 13 million. This is just foreign by the way. Uh, and those are all in the top 11 releases for this year. So like, you know, they're, those are making real money terms of hard genre there's not really a comedy in the top 10 uh unless you count cocaine bear which i'd sort of do um but i don't think you know i think it plays in two different angles there i think there's also something interesting about megan being in there because i actually i think that is was sold as horror but then watching it like it was there was comedy in there so like if you are doing comedy you have to historically have another angle though i do know that a lot of studios at least in the television space, they are looking and and these are from the mandates. These mandates get circulated among assistants and their friends. And they're this like extensive PowerPoint PDFs that go around. Hard comedies are something that people are looking for. So there's, there's hope, there's hope. But yeah, yeah. I think Jason, you've hit the nail on the head. A lot of a lot of studios are, are are afraid to take risks on something. And horror is just a sure bet because not only do you have people getting butts and seats because they want to feel something, but also you're getting that long tail of people at home watching, again, desperate to feel something and turning. Yeah, I mean, Megan, I'm looking right now, Megan made almost $80 million foreign box office and it made 95 domestic. So it's like, you know, if you're splitting that way, horror is kind of a no-brainer so so yeah comedy look it's hard to translate but it's super budgets down um you can do it and honestly like the big comedies of the early 2000s made a lot of money you know knocked up 40 year old virgin i love you man these are all financial successes and they weren't cheap to make either i mean they were shooting those movies on film 
So, you know, I, I'm hoping these can have a big comeback and you can do them. We'll kind of see. But yeah, it's, as a writer, I think genre mashups are really tricky. Um, a lot of times if you're talking to a studio and you want to write a horror comedy, they want it to be more horror than comedy because they want the yeah. trailer to be horrific, right? It's like, hey, like, totally. this is what sells. If you're laughing really hard at that trailer, like a Tucker and Dave versus the world, even though I love those movies, uh, you know, they don't make money the way a Megan would, which is a creepy mm-hmm. trailer you're sort of laughing at but unsure of. So it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I think comedy works in action much easier. You know, like you want to see the explosions, but you also want to laugh. But, you know, we're going to see what the marketplace looks like. And I, I do think uh, this No Hard Feelings Jennifer Lawrence movie is going to set the bar for better or worse, which is why we all have to bring our extended family to see it. Yeah. But it's also tricky because, you know, when you think about like cultural legacy and also long catalog, like the music industry is all getting more focused on catalog with streaming. And like, I wonder when the film industry is going to start paying a little bit more attention to catalog because like Tucker and Dale versus evil is still culturally referenced way more. You see way more memes. It's way more of a thing. And I guarantee you is getting watched more on streaming platforms than probably. And I can't name any of the movies that probably made more money than that did that year in horror, but are all now forgotten 12 years later, except for maybe whatever saw movie came out alongside it. So like it, you know, I wish there was some way to incentivize the long play of like, oh, this movie might not make a huge, but it will be a cult thing that will be watched forever. Unfortunately, studios would like a cult thing that's watched forever that also makes a fuck ton of money now, which I understand. I mean, you need money to eat. They want their cake yeah. and to eat it too. I mean, the now thing you're talking, and then later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, Charles, I'm like absolutely with you. I, I, I think it's, um, the funniest part about that is like, that's what the WGA is talking about now. Like, Hey, if I create this cult classic that people are watching all the time on Netflix in your library, I should get paid for that. Even if it didn't open big, you know? And I think that's like yeah. part of uh, the discussion in terms of why they don't have that long forward thinking of like, well, we have to pay residuals in the future. They want that money now, you know? And I think it's, uh, it's hard to tell like what'll have that impact. But I do think to your point, Megan seems like it was greenlit because everybody knew people are going to talk about this. And Malignant, right. which came before it, same writer, same honestly writer. felt along the same lines of like, hey, this is just crazy enough. That's why let me look. you can read this article on nofilmschool.com. We always talk about having a noisy logline, right? It's like, okay, what's the um, amount of interest you can garner from, from just an idea? I think like Psycho Child Robot murder revenge movie is like ah yeah i can't like that's clickable yeah in a way that i i think makes an idea marketable versus maybe something we've already seen which would be like oh it's like i've got a haunted doll it's like okay like you know there's a dozen of those movies per year so if you're out there writing and brainstorming and trying to come up with stuff think about what would get people talking and i i think that's an underrated point of writing and an underrated point of why some of these ideas that don't work in the box office wind up going viral because you can tell your friends about it very quickly, if, especially if they can click on it on a Netflix or Hulu or whatever. That was very much the narrative around how Cocaine Bear got greenlit. Like people were like, oh, a bear on cocaine? Same same idea. And it's the the same person greenlighting at Universal, the same person who greenlit Violent Night. I was like, not so Silent Night? No, not that one. Violent yeah. Night. Like it's it's the... It's that catchy thing, which like, again, it's, it's the balance, but you know, you can, you can write, if you, if you have an idea that is sparking something like that, like you can chase it hard and, and it has a, cho- a shot. Absolutely. I also, I also do want to say that, you know, there are certain movies that 
you can bring in, you know, a certain type of crew and a certain type of talent and it just explodes into the stratosphere. Or, you know, you get some other crew and some other talent that may be just as good that it won't hit. For example, this is maybe a rumor. I don't remember where I heard this, but originally, oh my God, it was with Chris Pine, Ben Foster, I believe Tommy Lee Jones. What was that movie? Hell or High Water? Right? Yes. Yeah, Hell or High Water. Yeah. Yeah. So that initially was supposed to be like a straight to, you know, streaming movie that wasn't supposed to be big. And then it just worked so well that it became, you know, something bigger. And, uh, that's always the fear of greenlining something that's weird. You know, it's that no matter how amazing the idea is, you get a crew that just maybe not doesn't mesh well in the day. You might not get something that pops as much as Cocaine Bear or Megan or, you know, a myriad of other films that we just talked well, about. That's yeah. the origin of the dreaded phrase execution dependent, right? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. The worst note of all notes where you're like, well, yeah, but it's all execution dependent. Like there Isn't is no script. The, yeah. yeah. Everything's yeah. I mean, to, dependent. To be fair on Hell or High Water, it was a incredibly hot script at the time called Comancheria. And Taylor Sheridan was an incredibly hot writer when it came out. So I do think it might have been aimed at being smaller, but when you have Sicario, no pun intended, blowing up and being such a huge movie and getting these people involved, and when you get talent like a Tommy Lee Jones and a Chris Pine, who at the time were peaking, right, with the uh, I think that was his Wonder Woman year too. It was like the Pinesance. Um, you know, like studios do, like again, execution dependent, but if it tests well early and they can see a marketing thing they could put in there, um, it definitely becomes a favorable play. But can yeah, I also point out it's Jeff Bridges, not Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, yeah. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Thank you. Wow. That, Good we, call. We were about to like be in a yeah. lot of trouble with Jeff. Nobody corrected me until now. <laughs> Well, I just don't want, I never want to like yeah. hang, get get the opportunity to hang out with Jeff Bridges and have him be like, but wait a minute, yeah. you fuckers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that one podcast that you did however many years ago. Oh, Jeff was... listens. He's a friend oh, of the pod. Okay. He's right. a friend of the pod, for sure. Tommy Lee Jones, No Country for Old Men, Jeff Bridges, Hell or High Water, both cowboy hats. Forgive us listeners. Yeah. All right. And then next up, um, what's his face? Oh my god, I remember Seth Rogen has it's a some bad thoughts. name day for us. It's yeah. a bad, <laughs> bad name day. Isn't name day a thing in some religion where people get names? Yeah. Any, Happy name oh, day. Happy yeah. name day. Yeah, uh, yeah, Seth Rogen was out with some hot takes on critiques and critics and feedback. I thought maybe we should read the quote first just to get in there. Um, Seth Rogen did, he was on a podcast this week called Diary of the CEO. Um, and you know, like any filmmaker he they asked about critics and critiques of your movies and uh you know i think we can all relate in terms of people who make things that you have to get reviews and i you know i i've read some some scathing ones myself about myself and my own stuff so like uh this is the industry we're in and rogan i think came in with i guess a little bit of a hot take that went viral on twitter we covered it on film school Um, but he basically said is i think uh i think if most critics knew how much it hurts people uh, that made the things they're writing about, they would second guess the way they write these things. And he continued saying, it's devastating. I know people have never recovered for it. Honestly, a year, decades of being hurt by film reviews. It's very personal. It's devastating when you're being institutionally told that your personal expression was bad. And that's something people carry with them literally their entire lives. And I get why. Um, you know, he goes on to talk about what 
felt like with Green Hornet, where he was like, it didn't hurt as much because it's, you know, sort of a conceptual failure studio level. But the interview, something you really cared about, you know, wrote and and was a part of directing, um, you know, how how that felt. And it felt like a creative failure, which to him is like, you know, ultimately personal. Um, the one thing I will say is that those comments did go viral. The thing that didn't go viral was what he said after, which is, uh, that's a funny thing about making movies. Life goes on. You can be making another movie as your current movie is bombing, which is funny and bittersweet. You know things will be okay. You're already working. It's the fear the movie bombs and you'll never get hired again. Um, well, you don't have to worry about it, but it's an emotional conundrum at times. So honestly, like, didn't it come out as hard at critics as some critics came back as hard as him? But I think it's something, you know, like worth talking about in terms of uh, everything we're, we've dealt with and I'm sure whatever listeners are dealing with uh, when they debut their projects and have to listen to feedback. I mean, have have you guys had the feedback, any feedback that like really just went right through your heart that you'll never forget? I don't think there's been something like that where it's been a stab to the heart, but I uh, had some success with a script right out of grad school that did well on one of the many lists that now exist in Hollywood. And, you know, going on Reddit, which I think, you know, isn't really like, it's like the worst place for critics, but also like nobody cares because Reddit it's not really like a place where critics go, but the criticisms were real. And uh, there, there were some harsh words said. And I think the biggest thing was like, Oh, it's just, it has all the nuts and bolts that like people want to see, you know, it's hitting the, like kind of like the goalposts and everything else about it is trash, but because it's hitting those goalposts, it's going to get made. Never did get made Reddit. So you're welcome. But um, <laughs> yeah, but like you know, it, it Reddit can be brutal, you know, um, and I think you know it can also be very good because people can then embrace your work or your community and bring you up and and hold you up high, and it's also like a place where you know strange things happen. Reddit is a weird place. Don't go to Reddit. Yeah. Stay away. In 2016, uh, I had a movie at South by Southwest called Shovel Buddies. It was based off you know, whatever. It was a script I wrote in 2012 that was on the blacklist. And at that point in my life, people had only ever said good things about that script because it was a script that was on the blacklist and you do the water bottle tour and someone buys it. And then you're on set with directors and actors making it and nothing will ever feel as good as that. Right. And then I remember we did South by Southwest and a couple reviews came out. And one of them was just like, I, I, I probably remember close to the exact quote was like, Hellerman's trying with the storytelling, but but like the audience is having trouble believing it. And I just remember being like, man, that's like a really, that's my name. And I did try. I was trying. And I thought the audience, <laughs> like, well, I thought some of them people got it, you know? And it's hard. I think, you know, going back to the original conversation, it's like, yeah, like that will stick with me forever. Like, I don't think there's any argument uh, there that like when you're writing and directing, you're bearing part of your soul. And that for me was a really personal screenplay. And, and I, I think like I was able to shed all the um, hurt and things that I had felt and put in this coming of age thing. And then to have stuff like that. And I remember like the writer went on to like really justify, I felt like why they felt that way. And I read it and was like, okay, like I understand where you're coming from. Um, whereas other reviews, the other review I remember just sort of being lazy was like, I can't believe this is a movie about a kid who dies with, from cancer. And then all of his friends in high school are shown smoking cigarettes. I'm like, man, I don't know where you went to high school. We had a lot of people, like, you know, we had people who died of cancer. We, it didn't stop us from smoking. Like, I, you know, like, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a watershed moment. Anyway, like, it was just stuff like that where I was like, okay, like, 
maybe it didn't work for you, but it worked for me. And um, I don't know, like I never, never tweeted them, never fired back. You know, you just kind of, you do have to keep going. Um, I do think Rogan's probably right that like, if you're not making something currently, it cannot certainly alter your career. We've all heard of the filmmakers who make a uh, heaven's gate or something like that, that bombs and you don't come back. I think that now in this rotten tomatoes world, people care less about your rotten tomato score and care a lot more about whether or not your movie made money. Uh, and I think most filmmakers yeah. also try to focus it on that, but it's tough when it's, when you're starting to break in the best thing for you, aside from making money, which is very hard and near impossible. If you're doing an indie, right. Is to get great word of mouth. And if you don't have it, um, you can't do anything about it and it can kind of sink what your projects are. So yeah, it's always something to think about. I'll read uh, two comments from something that I made that I'm not going to mention what it is, but it was one of the first things and we can't take it off the internet because it was so long ago. One person wrote, this is painful to watch. And somebody else wrote, the audio sync is just as bad as the hipster attitudes. And, <laughs> and I mean, I, for years, like didn't do anything creative because I, you know, yeah. tried put myself out there at, at a very young age and failed and then was like, well, you know, and it's a bummer when an idea or when somebody's light can be put out, snuffed out so early at the early stage of filmmaking. And luckily I got over it, but yeah, I know that I don't know how, when it comes to the days of like actual reviews, when my work is out there, how I'm going to approach it, because how do you preserve yourself? And then on top of that, like, I do think that critiques and critics these days a lot of the time i'm reading these things that are you know certified reviewers from you know these websites and and i'm like this is a, not a critique this is a summary of the movie like i'd love to have a com like actually in interrogate what we made but like a lot of the things that feel like they're tearing people apart are clickbaity and, and then when I'm reading it, it's like, okay, a little rant session, then a summary of what happened. And I'm like, that's not a critique. Let's like actually bring back a great critique. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a, it's what Charles started out critique versus critics, you know, like a critique, um, theoretically is, Hey, like, this is how I felt. This is, this is where I think you zigged and maybe should have zagged. This is whatever. And I think criticism is just being like, you suck. And, and I think at some point, like a critique has to stand on the intellectual prowess of the person writing it. Hey, this is how I engage with it. This is what I wanted to get out of it. This is what I did get out of it. And I think there's room for variance and, you know, certainly like different movies for different people and things like that. Whereas criticism seems like now written to be a viral statement, right? We all need to get clicks. We need to do whatever. I think it's a fine line. There's like plenty of people out there I think are doing incredible work, but even like some of my favorite critics sometimes I think are like, Want, we'll pack a zinger into something just in case. And it, like we're all human, we're all doing this stuff. And I think on both sides, like you're making art to be seen. So you want to hear how people engage with it. But it's also like, there's nothing like putting yourself out there and being rejected. And as filmmakers and writers and directors and whatever, it's like to have to do that over and over again, you, you gotta, like, forget thick skin. I mean, you just have to find, a, you have to get a dog to hug or like find some sort of coping mechanism because they're not all going to be bangers. I mean, even yeah. Spielberg has a 1941, you know? I Which I kind of enjoyed 1941. Very charming. Yeah. 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 Uh, but what's so funny is being on the outside of these criticisms, like less so with yours, Jason, uh, but like with both Yaros and Gigi's, it's so clear the insecurity that is driving the person who wrote the criticism. 
Like yeah. from where I'm sitting, that Redditor is so mad that you made the blacklist. And yeah. the, that Redditor so clearly knows the list of everything that should make something work. And like, you probably did not have a checklist. You were just writing a screenplay, but that person probably has a checklist of like, oh, and this checks all the boxes. So it's going to get made. And like, you know, Gigi, like anytime anyone says the word hipster, hipster is a manifestation of insecurity. I see a thing that is cooler or more stylish and I feel like I can't participate and I will attack it. That's all that. So it's like from where, like from the outside, the, the thing I always try and remember about criticism is that from the outside, it always looks ridiculous and motivated by other things. But from the inside, that doesn't make it not feel awful when you hear it. Mm -hmm. And like you hear it and it's like such a, yeah, I wonder about people in other industries because like it's such a vulnerable thing to try and create like art or music and share it with the world. Like, are there people in accountants who are like, I don't know, I thought I did a good job on those taxes. Like, fuck you. The the math is wrong. Yeah, you tear apart those spreadsheets. It's it's so interesting. I think it it is. Look, I I have like basically two rules, which I think it's like if you put something on YouTube, the comments don't matter. It's just most of the time it's not like I remember we put our uh, how to write a screenplay thing video I did on YouTube, and the first comment was like, "Why would you let a guy with this guy's voice make a make a twenty minute video?" I was like, "All right, that's like a thing I can't control," you know. Like, but like, so you can't read those comments unless you're reading them off to your friends to laugh. And and Reddit too. I was like, if you put something up on Reddit and you're like, judge me, you sort of get what you deserve. And you didn't ask that, Yara. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's no. That was I was forced. It was forced. Yeah, you're forced. You're forced into it. You know, the rest of it is like, just keep creating. I mean, that's like the only thing that's gotten me through it. It's like not every script you write gets made. Not every script you write gets on the blacklist or even gets accolades or or even gets people to enjoy it. You know, I've I've written a couple clunkers where I'm like, what do you mean? No one wants to have a general meeting. I I thought this is nine months of my time well spent. But but it is. The motivation, I think, is always there because, you know, we all, you have to want it more than you want to hurt or more than it hurts, I guess. I don't even know that, like, there's certainly not a, uh, it's not a, some old adage there. It's just like, you just keep trucking along and deal with it as you go. Well, and I also think you just accept that it hurts. Like, I feel like there was a part of me that thought it would stop hurting at some point to get negative feedback and that like, I'll outgrow that or that like, but it's like, first off. Other people, it also stings, even if it doesn't look like they sting, right? Like, I've been told it doesn't look like it stings me, but it stings. And, like, I'm sure it doesn't always show on your faces. You don't always have a single tear that rolls down your face as you get that. But, like, it hurts everyone. But, like, it'll always hurt. And that the the fact that it hurts also means that we're people who care and are sensitive and are trying to be engaged in the world. And, like, frankly, if bad feedback didn't hurt, you're also probably not going to be able to do anything interesting because you're not going to be engaged enough with humanity to try and understand like the full emotional palette of being alive. Yeah. I'm curious, Charles, when you're teaching your younger students who are sort of entering this feedback phase for the first time, like how do you sort of give them the pep talk to be like, it's okay to feel these things. It's also okay to like, accept that not everyone's going to like this. Like, do you have any wise words that you share? I, it's funny because I actually, I've, other than the speech I just gave, which I've given some version of before, I hope it didn't sound rehearsed, but some version of like the hurting is okay is part of the deal. I usually focus it more on the person giving the criticism and trying to improve their skills at giving criticism. Because frankly, I mean, no matter how much we want to create, 90% of our career is giving feedback to others. Like either as a director, giving it to actors or as a screenwriter, giving your friends notes. Like we do so much more of that than getting notes on our own work just because of the way the world works. And so I really try and focus on students and people like 
learning what is beneficial to critique, like learning like, oh, part of my job as a criti critic is to look at what they're trying to do. In Jason's case, trying to tell a story, look at what they're trying to do and see what I can do to further that goal as opposed to just looking for things to say. But yeah. you're right. I should probably spend more time on the receiver than the giver. I just spend most of my time coaching the giver of feedback. So much of it. I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, I think number one, be gracious. If someone spent the time to read your thing or watch it, it's like, you know, like that's one thing that, uh, it's a pet peeve of mine where I'll like someone will reach out and I'll like be like, okay, great. And I will spend a Saturday morning reading and they'll be like, I just don't agree with you. It's like, okay, thanks for wasting my Saturday then. You know? Um, and I think as a giver, most of the time it's like, don't give a TV writer told me this once, um, who I really respect. He said like, don't, don't give, don't give a note that you don't have, you don't understand the intention behind. Right. So if someone's like, why did you kill the mom in act one? It's like, okay, like maybe instead think about like, Hey, the ramifications of killing the mom in act one is, is it like, what's the intention behind it? If you don't know, mm -hmm. ask a question, right? Cause they might be like, hey, like, actually, instead, you could be doing blah, blah, blah. And I think, like, all notes should be driven to making what you assume the goal is uh, to achieving it, right? It's like, uh, if, if uh, screenplay is a map, all of the notes you give should be the easiest way to get to X marks the spot, right? And it shouldn't be like, hey, actually, what I would do is I would kill the mom in Act 4. Okay, but why, right? You know what I mean? Like, if you can't explain why, then you're just arbitrarily giving things. I think it's tough. It's like, as someone who's received many notes from people I love, executives I hate, everyone <laughs> in between, it's like you're, I think it's always take it graciously and go on because the way to build a career in this town, truly, at least what I found out the easy and hard way, is to be able to take notes. Whether or not you do them, that, you know, I think is uh, subjected to, the, to what the project is, but the ability to graciously take and think through notes and take it as good because it, a lot of times it people aren't married to you doing exactly what they want you to do. What they're married to is like making the best thing possible. And you can yeah. find great collaborators who give great notes, whether that's represent uh, representatives or um, filmmaker friends, which is some of the people I rely on all the time. Um, your stuff will only get better, you know, like listen to it. And uh, it's tough you're bearing your soul. You're going to be a little touchy about it. Um, I don't know. And if you get over that touchiness, then you might not be making anything worthwhile anymore. You know? Like you, it should sting a little bit, you know? Yeah. I think a notepad is a great trick. Like, because what a notepad gives you is the ability to write it down. So you have something physical to focus on. And also the ability to communicate to the person you're listening to that you've heard their note. Hmm. So you don't have to say, oh, I'm going to take that. Or Ooh, that's good. You're just like, you write it down and they know you've heard them and you can keep moving through things. Because you don't want to end up in that trap where someone's like, oh man, you've got to fucking kill that mother in the act, fourth act. <laughs> and you're like, and then you like have to keep fighting with them about it. It's like, no, I'm just, oh, I'm going to write that. Oh, that's it. That's, I'll, I'll think about that. And a, a notepad, like a physical notepad, such a powerful note receiving tool for the, for many reasons. Just wanted to add like the biggest thing I've learned in the last 10 years about notes is the note itself, like the actual content of the note is irrelevant. The fact that in that moment, something doesn't work for that reader, that's, like the only thing you should pick up from whatever interaction you're having. Like the note could be helpful. It couldn't, it could be mean or, you know, irrelevant, but something in that moment didn't work for that reader. And you have to go back. Like yeah. at the very least. The number of times that we fixed notes, like 
because I worked at post forever. So like, yeah, you get notes about like this thing in the third act's not working. And then you fix it in the first act. Like you don't even touch the third act at all. Same is true in the screenplay, but you're like, oh, I didn't set this up right in the, so I have to like cut this thing in. Oh my God. We had one where nobody understood every time the character was on his laptop, nobody understood he was working. And all we had to do was add like one shot in the beginning of a spreadsheet. Like you saw over the, and it fixed the, and like, we never got that note again. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, you know, to quote Billy Wilder, if you have a third act problem, it really means you have a first act problem. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's a note thing, is remembering the note behind the note, as Yara said. It's like, why are they Why are they catching something in that moment? Why are they bored enough that they are finding things to catch? Like, what else? Like, why is it like... Because often the notes are just, this part is slow, and I have time to notice things. You want them reading so fast or leaned in so hard that they are like they the the time flies just like age these days. All right, so that's this week's No Film School podcast. We will be back every week, and uh, you can check out many articles about this at nofilmschool.com. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm only on Mastodon and YouTube. Those are the two places to find me. So check me out on YouTube. Which I have to say, Jason, I I've had nothing but nice comments on YouTube to the point where I'm like so confused by how friendly youtube is to me and you i'm like what have voice. i done you have what? a beautiful voice well thank every you. every time i hear it i'm like oh that that sultry bellow of charles Hayne. <laughs> <laughs> my nickname in college was the shouter uh i'm Gigi hawkins you can find my work at ggihawkins.com and at lost in graceland uh and um, tomorrow we have an episode that aligns with a, an interview for a screening in New York. So check it out. I'm Jason Hellerman. You can find me, uh, at Jason Hellerman on Twitter still for the time being and everywhere on no film school. Um, reach out if you have questions, email me if there's a topic we haven't covered and you want to read more about it. Um, we're excited to hear from you. And I'm Yaroslav Altudin. Uh, you can find me at itsyaro.com and on Instagram at it's no at on Instagram uh, at iyaro87, like iPod, but iyaro87. Jason, we got to get you over to Mastodon. There is screenwriting Mastodon. Join it. I'll get, I, look, I love the name Mastodon. I might have to get in there regardless. Yeah. Awesome. See Brought everybody to you next by week. Mastodon. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>